What if we asked our faith questions to an actual pastor? Step aside, Science Mike. This week, it's Ask Pastor Sarah. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Only this week, I'm not answering any questions at all. In the studio with me is my dear friend, Pastor Sarah Heath of Costa Mesa First United Methodist Church in Costa Mesa, California, and host of the Sonderlust Podcast. So, we've got 10 questions to handle, and now we're going to get it started. All right, as I mentioned right up top, we're doing something different this week. In the studio with me is Sarah Heath. Say hello, Sarah. Hi. (laughs) You've heard her voice on the Liturgist podcast before. She's the person who came up with the whole science mic thing at that (laughs) fateful party in Denver. Uh, So a huge person in my life, my spiritual formation, a dear friend. And there's this thing that happens where you all ask me, uh, you love hearing from me, of course, and I appreciate it, but you ask, could I bring other people on? And I did. I brought on scientists with BioLogos, and I brought on PDNs to talk about theological issues. And then you said, hey, why don't you stick around and have a conversation with these people instead of having them make your show for you and you just getting a vacation <laughs> week? So I totally understand that dynamic, and that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to go through 10 questions uh, submitted by people on Patreon uh, to Sarah as a uh, an inclusive, non-coercive woman pastor, which I I just think is like an ideal expression (laughs) of clerical authority today. Um, Clergical? Clerical? Clerical. Clerical. Uh, Lady of the cloth. Lady of the cloth. I love it. So, but before we do that, I've got a few events I want to tell you about, like May 7th. I'm going to be in Minnesota for the Jesus Rode a Dinosaur Faithful Youth Ministry in a Scientific Age conference with a little someone known as Krista Tippett. So not bad uh, company there, as well as a bunch of other great speakers. And then uh, folks in Ontario, you Canadians, I'm coming to the Skylight Festival on July 27th. And also, I don't usually talk about events this far out, but October 26th and 27th, I'll be in Montreat, North Carolina for the Evolving Faith Conference. Now, why do I mention a conference in October now? Well, it's hosted by Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie, two of my absolute favorite uh, spiritual leaders. And then their roster at this event includes Jen Hatmaker, Austin Channing Brown, Jeff Chu, Audrey Assad, Cindy Brandt, Propaganda, who you'll hear more from on an announcement through the liturgist soon. Uh, Oshetta Moore, Kathy Escobar, me, Science Mike, Adrian Neves, Nish Wiseth, Peter Inns, Sandra Van Opstel, Jonathan Martin, Solvig Leithog, Will Gaffney, and Cheryl Bridges Jones. So, excuse me, Johns. And that's like an incredible lineup of spiritual leaders that embody incredible theological diversity 
incredible racial and gender diversity, orientation diversity. So this is going to be amazing. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is because tickets are going super fast. Uh, The early bird tickets, what they thought would take a month to sell out, sold out in 23 hours. Um, And general admission tickets I'm looking at, they've sold over 100 today. So I would expect this event to fill up in the next couple of weeks. So if you're thinking about wanting to see that lineup of people October 26th and 27th, uh, you want to go to uh, evolvingfaithconference.com. For information on other events I'll be a part of, go to asksciencemike.com. Click on the events button and that will get you in. So uh, what do you say? Let's talk to Pastor Sarah. So as my regular listeners know, Ask Science Mike is going through somewhat of an identity crisis right now. Oh, no. As I try to figure out how the structure works. Oh. And um, I, I do like doing the question and answer episodes. I just feel like it gets monotonous if that's all we ever do. Right. Um, and the so live episodes, Ask Science yes. Mike is going through. You're not going through. I am not. No. Okay. My identity is is quite settled. We could have that. That could be a pastoral conversation. The podcast <laughs> is not. Um and I, it's kind of, you know, this show for me is like my safe refuge from the insanity of the liturgists. Yeah, that makes sense. Because there's so many creative people involved in the liturgists. I don't think we've ever done something the same way twice. Mm. So I compensate by doing Ask Science Mike exactly the, the same, same way. every week <laughs> with no variance. Um, and oddly enough, this strange thing happened where um, Ask Science Mike just kind of found some subscribers and they never leave. <laughs> mm, my dad's one of them. And you never get and I'm new one ones. Of them. It's just the same number of listeners every single week, unless it's a live show and then it goes up oh. and then back down when it's not a live show. Oh. And I asked my patrons, like, what should I do? And uh, they said, why don't you interview people? You know, we like the liturgists, but what if there was something like kind of less edited, a little more raw, Ooh. a little less planned? So I did one with a guy named Bart Campolo. He's pretty great. People went crazy, and I called it a pastor for atheists. Yeah. Um, which is great. I think secular people need pastoral care in their lives. But then there are people who aren't atheists. They don't <laughs> want to be secularists, but they have like a lot of baggage with churches. I've never, I've never met these people. <laughs> <laughs> If you're wondering, my church is a little bit of a, a refuge for what I like to call the nuns and duns, yeah, or what we call the spiritual nomads. So that's that's my jam. I uh, really enjoy people uh, who have gone through sort of deconstruction and who are trying to reconstruct. Those are the most interesting people um, currently in my ministry, I think. And then those who have been around for a long time, they're also they've also got. If you're stuck in the faith, if you're uh, if you stuck around, it's not an easy thing to stick around. So you've got a lot of questions and mm. you've had to work through things. So I love those people because they're asking great questions and thinking. And you literally helped me work through all that. <laughs> yeah. Like you were there when I I told a room full of people, I don't believe any of this. Yeah. And then you were there when I sobbed outside. Do you want to know one of my favorite moments from that weekend? And you probably don't even remember this is, uh, so you were an atheist at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh I stood up and told my story and I was so close to leaving ministry for a lot of personal reasons and just feeling like, you know, I give my all to this thing and I don't know if I want to be it. Like I felt like I was a nun, you know, I just felt, and I remember I finished like telling this whole story and then uh, 
Rob Bell asked everyone who would want to go to Sarah's church. And all these people actually raised their hand and you were one of them. And later you came up to me, a guy who at that point in time was an atheist. And you said to me, I really wish my daughters could meet you. And I remember thinking this Southern Baptist atheist wants his daughters to know me. And you said, I really think it's important that uh, people know women who are doing ministry. And I thought it was the weirdest thing for a, you know, at that point, someone I didn't know quite yet. And it felt so encouraging to me. And the best part of it all is now I know your daughters and they're a big part of my life. And I think it's just this beautiful thing that you were so supportive, even if you weren't sure about the whole gig. Yeah. Well, I thought if there's going to be pastors, <laughs> at least half of them should be women. Yes. At least half. Yeah. Um, Not everyone has that opinion, actually, strangely enough. I'm aware of that. <laughs> Not as experientially anymore. I do live in a little bit of a spiritual bubble. Yeah. Spiritual and political bubble. People are like, Size Mike, I think you... I think you spend more time with liberal and progressive people, and that's an accurate uh, statement. That's an accurate charge. But I, I have noticed your church is like a really great place for people who are in that state. Of like I don't know what I. Th- how do you how do you handle that tension between holding on to kind of orthodox Christian theology, yeah, and making people like me not feel like because I never felt like I was a a fixer-upper project for you. I oh, always gosh, felt like no. we related genuinely <laughs> no, as yeah, friends. We were friends. Um, but I'm literally, like, I'm a, I'm not just, I don't just identify as a Christian. I'm a member of the United <laughs> Methodist Church. Which is my tribe. Uh, how, how do you handle that balance? I think for me, because I relate to that struggle, so I became United Methodist when I was... Um, really kind of in high school and in college, because I moved from Canada and we didn't have the United Methodist Church. We had the United Church of Canada, which funnily enough is only in Canada. Mm. Weird how that is, huh? Um, But I had to choose this as a denomination for myself, because when I went to seminary, the deal was I could kind of like pick any denomination, right? And I chose a denomination that has something known as the quadrilateral, which is like my favorite way of looking at theology because it requires that you look at scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So for me, when I'm sitting with people who um, don't have the same uh, faith background as me, or they don't have the same um, beliefs, or maybe they think about Christianity in a totally different way, I'm able to use those four quadrants as ways to relate to people. So for me, I never could do a faith that didn't have reason. I need to bring my brain into it. And I thought I was being really crafty by having you preach at my church about reason, and then you (laughs) preached about why reason is sometimes bad. You totally flipped the tables on me. It's great. So good. It was such a good, uh, it was great. But I think that's what I do. I always come into every conversation. Well, I was trying to make reason sound like like 25% of how you should view things instead of 100. (laughs) Instead of 100. Exactly. And that's what it is, right? It's a balance. And I think that allows me... For me, the way I look at scripture, and we'll get into that with some of the questions for sure, but um, scripture is, within the United Methodism, we say that uh, scripture is primary but never alone, mm. which is really different um, to how a lot of other denominations see it. So I've always had that ability to sit with people that don't think the same way as I do and feel really comfortable and kind of actually love those conversations. And mm. I think it grows and stretches me. It's only been in the last couple of years that I've really run head on into folks who that's not the case for them. 
they can't be around people who think differently than them. And I don't know if it's because we're getting more and more siloed, um, but it is really interesting how, from my perspective, that's kind of what my faith is all about. If I look at Jesus and what he was able to do is to hold on to his own beliefs and hear the beliefs of others, mm. right? That's my favorite thing about this show. Yeah. Is um, 48% of the listeners are Republicans. Did you know that? No, I didn't know 48% that. 48% of Ask Science Mike listeners are Republicans. I love Republicans. Republicans. Um, and uh, about 12% are conservative evangelicals. Mm. And about 12% are atheists. Okay. And so there's this, um, like when I read the emails and I go through my social media, I don't get a, a monoculture. I don't get a silo right. from the people who listen to the program. I get like a lot of pushback. And I'll get, I'll get from the same thing I say, I'll get uh, really heated feedback from social justice advocates and really heated feedback from conservative evangelicals on I didn't go far enough in their direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I might experience that because that's one of the things that's been <laughs> I was trying to set you up. <laughs> yeah. As a pastor who preaches, um, people give feedback to pastors. Um, and I think they forget sometimes that uh, you know, every week you're getting up there and doing your best to you know, represent something or an idea or whatever it might be. And so people get feedback. And it's so funny because sometimes I'll get feedback that's literally like, oh, yeah, you didn't go far enough or you went too far. Um, my thing I think is so important is that a church is a place where, for me and my community, it's a place where a conservative needs to be able to sit next to, um, you know, someone who's way on the other side. And I think it's important because I think that's the kingdom of God. For me, it's where, you know, lion and lamb lay down together. And I'm not saying either side is the lion or the lamb. Right, right. <laughs> but, but they lie, lay down together. And I think it's one of the only places that I see right now um, in in America in particular where people of differing opinions for a moment uh, sit with the humanity of the other. Hmm. There are other spaces, but this is an intentional weekly time when I want to be able to get together with people who didn't vote the way I did or who don't think the way I think. Um, and I choose to see their humanity above and beyond the other things because I have that shared belief that we're all children of God. Mm. And so if we're all children of God, then, um, I need to be able to sit with someone who I don't agree with. And sometimes it's the worst, like it's a really hard thing to do. Um, but I think it's important to have that space. And that's why, like, even through my own doubts or own fears, I still think church is important. It's, uh, you know, it's something I've given my career so far to, right? Mm. Mm. And, a, and a lot of people are, you know, post-church, and I get that. I understand that. Um, but for me, it's almost a, it's a practice to be able to sit in a room with people and do the same things together that are really formational. And I'm looking you in the eye, and we're present together, and I'm sharing a little bit of me, and you're sharing a little bit of you, um, and we are together. And I don't think there's a lot of places that we get to do that. Mm. Well, speaking of church communities. Yeah. A friend of mine on Patreon named Michael, who spells it differently than I do. So, Michael, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name. Mikael. Mikael. Michael. I think it's Michael. Um, But here's his question for you. Mm. What conversations would you try to have with and how would you approach people who may be interested in joining a church community because they exclusively feel interested 
in the social and community aspects of an inclusive church and not necessarily the belief components. I think some of us have a soft interest in the spiritual open-mindedness of a very open church as opposed to pursuing a completely secular humanist space. And Michael, I would imagine you represent an absolutely immense number of listeners uh, of this podcast. Yeah, uh, and you also represent an immense number of humans. <laughs> uh, I think that I love the language, by the way, of uh, being spiritually open. Uh, mm. I think for for what those conversations would look like for, for me, because this isn't just a question, it's a reality in my own church community. There are people of varying beliefs. And there are, there's like one guy who always tells me, I'm still not a Christian. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like every week it's like a check-in. <laughs> Just so you know. Just so you know. I'm still not, still a, not Christian. a Christian. Yeah. All right. But he's like the most Christ-like person. Um, and I think I love having these conversations with him. And I love having conversations with other folks who are interested in um, what makes me tick or what makes other believers in this tick. Why, why is this thing happening? I think it's beautiful when you can honor it and not just consider it. Uh, silly or I had one friend when I told her I was a Christian she um, acted as if I just told her that I believed in Santa it was she was like oh that's so cute (laughs) she actually said that's so cute Sarah Um, and I so I go into the conversation friend in uh, the Los Angeles area no oh okay oh that does sound like something they would say definitely in Portland or Seattle to be like oh Christian that's cute wow Yeah, uh, you still exist. Now, this was in Canada. So I grew up in Canada till I was 14. Okay. And then I moved to Mississippi. Godless Canada. And then I moved to Mississippi, which has the, like, I guess they own the rights to God at this point. So I went from one extreme to the other, which might explain how I ended up in the middle. Um, I love to have the conversation of why this space? Mm-hmm. Why? Okay, that's great. If you're um, questioning or you're interested, you're always going to be welcome here. Um, the beauty of uh, our belief system is it's not always orthodoxy, although I'm, I have quite orthodox beliefs for a lot of folks. It's orthoprax. So orthopraxy being like, how are we living out this, the messages of Jesus? So if you want to think of Jesus as like a guru, um, not the way I see it. I do believe in the divinity of Christ. But I, I think this is this beautiful opportunity for us to live out the way mm. of, of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus, if we're honest— the, the, I hate to say this, but like the real way of Jesus and not the way that we've sort of, especially America has sort of taken this story and made it into something um, entirely different. But the real way of Jesus or the way that I seem to be able to see in scriptures um, is really this uh, peaceful and loving way. And uh, I know that can only be to the good. So I would welcome you in my space. And then I would want to talk to you about uh, why this space for you was was important and what you were looking for. I think some folks come to our church for the reason also that we don't have a chance to be intergenerational mm. in very many spaces. Think about it. we Everything's siloed. Uh, and so our church is a space that has tried to intentionally be intergenerational. And that's actually, you know, people are always like, how do you have millennials? And the answer is because I have really old people too. Right. And our um, millennial folks who are so far away from their own family want to be in that. And so it's a family-like atmosphere. So I usually ask people a lot of questions about why this space for them. And then I ask them to be as respectful of my beliefs as I'm going to be of theirs. And um, I also say, you know, maybe by the end of this, you will be, you will be, but maybe you won't. And it's that moment where I realize I'm not Jesus and I can't 
bring you to, uh, you know, sometimes the language is like bring them to salvation. Um, I don't think we ever really can do that. I think it's God. Um, you know, I believe in this thing called prevenient grace or the grace which is before. And the idea being God's always there and you just got to turn your uh, face toward. Um, and so, yeah, I would be excited to have you in my group, Mikkel, Michael, Mikkel. <laughs> it's M-I-K-E-L, which really seems like a it's better Michael. way to spell Michael than yeah. M-I-C-H-A-L. Like I spell Michael. And if it's Mikhail, I, actually, the problem with M I K E E L is it is it's a good way to spell Michael or Mikhail. <laughs> um, whereas M I C H A E L is just a bad way to spell it. it Michelle. Michelle. And I'm trying to remove my Southern accent from it. I'm saying in normal English, <laughs> if you actually pronounced it. With every letter part. Anyway. Michelle. Oh yeah, because it's a shh. Anyway, we and I'd also like to say we're we're social we're social primates. Yeah. So I think anytime you gather with people, if they'll accept you as you are, that's a healthy thing for you. The danger is when there's this coercion. If you're gonna be in this right. community, you need to be like us. You need to believe these things, you need to not like these people. And that's really hard because I do get a lot of flack from other uh, pastors or other communities or even um, folks who say like, shouldn't you have the people sign off on these things? And I always say, I feel like we're, we're always changing as people. And so some of the things I would have signed off on three years ago, I wouldn't sign off on now. And some things that I'll sign off on three years from now, I would never sign off on now. So the idea of saying, these are the beliefs that you need to have to stay in this community suggests that if I no longer have those beliefs, I'm no longer welcome in this community. And that is just heartbreaking for me. Hmm. Heartbreaking for me. Yeah, I've experienced that firsthand. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's true. Like if you believe, if you change, you don't belong here anymore. It becomes a subtext. Eesh. Okay. Rachel asked, I've heard theologians sort of refute the idea of original sin by pointing out that the Genesis story doesn't say that Adam's sin was the moment sin entered the world. I'm glad you're here. We are already beyond my level of theological sophistication. <laughs> Irony. Oh, no. Yeah, Irenaeus, right? But then they don't say anything about Romans 5, right? which was where I understood that doctrine to come from mm. as the one man sin entered through, as through one man sin entered the world, et cetera, et cetera. I wish et cetera, et cetera was in the Bible translation. Anyway. Yada, and yada. I understand it to be connected to the Genesis story. Does Romans reference Genesis to talk about original sin and the resulting fallen state of the world? What are your thoughts on this passage in any case? Oh, Romans 5. Ooh. I might have to look that. That's the Adam, the original. Uh, do we have a Bible near us? Uh, I have several, but I have this found is... they're not as fast as internet Bibles. And the internet Bibles are super. By the way, this is super mainline. If you ask evangelicals, they just start like reciting the scripture. Well, that's where I was like, oh no, we've just shown that I don't have that superpower. And then mainliners are like, oh, I think Romans is in the New Testament. This shows you how much of a <laughs> this is how much of a dork I am, though. I'm like, oh, I think which theologian was the original, right? So if I look, if I think about it, we'll, we'll see if I can think. I think if we look at it, it would be Irenaeus. Oh, seminary professors, I hope you're not listening. 
But Irenaeus was the first to sort of connect the idea of original sin to Genesis. Yeah, so it's 512 is what... Uh, yeah, death through Adam. So the idea of uh, Jesus being the second Adam. So Jesus comes to... That's, that's sort of the language that it's talked around. And Paul, you know, many people would say that Paul was fighting against Gnosticism, right? Um, so the idea that like the body and one is sinful and one is not. And so it's sort of this um, joining of saying humans as a whole are sinful instead of like your flesh is sinful. So there's like, that's... I see. Interesting. Yeah, this is just me. So there I'm just the opposite of Paul, neither the body... Nor, nor the, the spirit t- are sinful. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. So, interestingly enough, it really is Paul's theology here. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Um, I recently spoke um, on Paul at an event, and I had to admit, and I, I say this quite often, Paul and I broke up in college, and then we would only mutually talk about our friend Jesus when uh-huh. we had to. Yeah. Uh, in that, you know, as a woman in ministry, a lot of people use Paul's words to be quite... Um, difficult for me. And so when I went to seminary, I actually took a whole class on Paul because Paul really fascinated me, especially because a lot of people have elevated the words of Paul above the words of Christ, which is super interesting. But how I look at this, uh, Rachel, is kind of how I look at a lot of uh, Pauline writing or the words that are associated with Paul in that this is the theology of Paul. Now, Paul's theology is usually reactionary, so you have to ask what's happening around him. So why? Because he's he's battling for what what Christian theology is going, going to, to be. be, right? Yeah. And he, in no way, I don't think Paul. I think Paul would be quite shocked to see that his stuff was canonized, right? I think he was working it out. Um, I I think about it sometimes as if someone were to pick up my journal right now and publish it. Like some of my thoughts are again, we're on this spectrum of change, and so some stuff has been canonized that. Um, this is Paul working out the theology for the church, right? They didn't have this theology of original sin, which is interesting. So how do we look at it? I happen to think, this is just, Sarah, this is not the United Methodist stance, by the way, mm. but I happen to think that original sin um, it is a harmful theology if we say that at our very base, we are not good. Mm-hmm. Because the when I look at when uh, God created us in the story of Genesis, right, everything is good. The only thing that's, interestingly enough, the only thing that's not good is when we're told we're alone. That's the only part mm. of creation that God says, this is, not, this is not good for Adam to be alone, right? But we seem to be so focused on, but then they fell, and now we have sin, and now everybody has sin, and I, I think that can be harmful, particularly I've dealt with um, babies when they've passed away um, and weren't baptized in time. What does that mean? Um, can we forgive their sin? And, and I, I just think it's really harmful to think of a baby as a sinner, honestly. Now, I think we are all born with part of us uh, that sort of faces towards um, sin, depending on how you look at sin. But we, we do have this temptation within us to be um, not the greatest people. Uh, but I think at a very base level, and this is my opinion, I don't think we're born sinners. I think we're born with the ability to sin, but I don't think we're born sinners. So if you want to ask me, what do I, how do I look at this first? I look at this first, how I look at most of Pauline uh, writing, which is that it's really helpful and I'm learning to love it now, mm. but it has taken me a while to look through it because I think for a long time I saw it as these are the words written then that mean these absolute things now. How do I reconcile that with my experience? So we talk about scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. I am experiencing the Holy Spirit 
to be moving in ways that maybe don't align with some of the things that we find. And we don't always have the uh, other side of the conversation. Like I said, Paul's writing is mostly reactionary. So if we don't know what he's reacting to, then it's really difficult for us to even comprehend what he's trying to say in this. Well, I always think it's helpful with Paul to think uh, of someone trying to filter a pharmaceutical education through yes. mysticism. Yes, so absolutely. So he's wrestling with like, what is righteous? So I'm, I'm starting to question everything I used to know. Right. In the context of this light, what is righteousness now? What do I hold on to? What, yeah, and what is what is what is Christ have to do with that? Um, it's kind of the journey we're and all. And there on. has to be some personal skin in the game, correct? Based on his uh, initial reaction to Christ's movement, yeah, and persecuting and yeah. and executing, yeah, Christians. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there has to be... Yeah, whoops doesn't work. <laughs> right. So there, there's this tremendous, like, what is... When when I think about Paul talking about sin... Right. And the, the primacy of sin in our lives without Christ, um, I can't help but also connect that to him calling himself the king of all sinners. Right. Autobiographical. Say that word for me. Yeah. Autobiographical. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think Paul liked Paul that much. No, 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 no. And that, we see that throughout. Yeah. We see that throughout. It is uh, as hard, and that was part of my reconciling with Paul, is as hard as I could be on Paul, Paul was harder on himself. Yeah. And I think that's why I think he would have been shocked by his own words being canonized, because I don't think he thought of himself that highly. He really was um, someone who was trying to figure out, I used to be this person, how do I reconcile who I am now? And if we are talking to most of your listeners, if we're talking to a lot of the people I work with, the truth is they have that same journey they're on. Mm. And so if we look at Paul with this sort of gracious look and say, okay, here's someone working out the theology, um, and what can we learn from that? And what what did how is he translating the Jesus way to a church? And, and he's the first one who's going to make it into a structure, right? There's no structure before. So he's the, taking the first stab at it, and we're like, that's the way it is forever. Well, and Paul lucked out with yeah. his like Gentile work. And his work with the Jewish diaspora spread across mm -hmm. the Roman Empire because that means he wasn't in Jerusalem when Rome destroyed it. Correct. And it means that his writings also weren't stored there. So we lost most of the early church's mm -hmm. writings and theologies. And yeah, the women's stuff went missing because it's interesting. They recently found women's writings. Mm -hmm. um, what would the church look like if we had found women's writing. I, I, one historian I read said that they referred to the church in Jerusalem as the mother church. Yes, yes. Well, I, and you know what? Easter is happening this weekend, and my friend joked that only women should preach. On, Although they'll hear this yeah. after Easter. You'll hear it after Easter. But, well, then We're going to time warp. Yeah, say <laughs> when Easter happens... Um, Easter happens, right? And my friend joked, and I think this is quite clever, what would the world, how would Christianity be different if only women could preach on Easter Sunday? Because in the story, in every single gospel, it's the women who discover Christ resurrected first. Hmm. So what if women were the only ones who could speak on Easter? I think that's hmm. interesting. But yeah. I support it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course you do. I love it. All right. Uh, yeah, so anyway, I guess. Rachel, I hope that helps. And I, Rachel, I would just say, I think 
Paul's obsession with the fallen state of the world is Paul's obsession and with his fallen, with the fallen state of himself and what that light meant to him. I want to do what's right, but I cannot do it. I know what's right. Yeah. Somebody should it. write a book about that in cognitive neuroscience. Okay. Uh, <laughs> teaser. JMO has a question. Hey, Science Mike and Pastor Sarah. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Huge fan of Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist, and I am very grateful for your work. I've been going through a period of deconstruction, uncertainty, doubt, and right now I feel mm. that I don't know what to believe about anything. You are in the right space, JMO. Mm-hmm. I was raised in the United Reformed Church with five-point Calvinism, tulip, what, what? That's <laughs> my ad lib. That's not an email. Infant baptism, no women in office, and the list goes on. I love my parents and have a lot of respect for them and what they taught me in regards to how to respect women, be a good husband, and seek a godly wife. But being a single man at 27 in 2018 is a pretty rough time. (laughs) I hear you, buddy. Social media only perpetuates this, and it seems difficult to not only find someone to run in life with, but also someone who can be okay with where I'm at in my faith, whatever that looks like from one day to the next. What advice do you have on finding a godly woman for a guy that doesn't even know what God looks like most days? Whoo, somebody's been hearing a lot of equally yoked, right? Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, so I e- forgot that was a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. So uh, equally yoked is a statement that's been said in a lot of churches for a lot of times, and people have assumed that it meant that my significant other needs to believe exactly how I believe in the exact same way that they believe. But Mike, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you and Jenny believe the same way that you did when you got married? No. <laughs> did you and Jenny both go through it? Jenny and you went through it in different ways, right? Yes. I'm not sure. Jenny, I don't believe the same thing now. Oh, no, I know you don't. Um, so I think... When we talk about what a godly woman is, that's a, that's a, and that's, I got to admit to you, that's got a little bit of a trigger for me there. Uh-huh. Uh, only because a godly woman is, uh, you know, in some ways and in some uh, areas meant women were to be quiet, mm-hmm. women were to run the household, women, you know, aren't to be uh, in the church as a leader. I like that you said in the office. Um, but I think if you're looking after, a, looking for only a godly woman, you're not looking for enough. What do I mean by that? I think you should be looking for someone who's a partner in life. And belief structures and what we think aren't actually that helpful in the relationships that I, because I get to be involved in a lot of relationships because of my position and because of, um, yeah, I just have a lot of friends that are married. I've noticed that it isn't necessarily that they believe the same things or that they um, have the same beliefs about every little thing, but it is about, do we look at life in a similar way? Are we excited about the same things? Are we um, able to find common ground when we don't believe the same way? Are we able to sit in that together? So if you're not a godly man currently, why are you looking for a godly woman is another question, right? Um, And what's your definition of godly? So what I would say is, yes, being single in 2018 for any age isn't easy. Um, but why don't you look for your partner and a person to um, 
live life with. I have so many friends whose family originally weren't okay with their partner because of differences. So my one friend is Southern Baptist and she's marrying a Catholic. And for her parents, that was just like really difficult until they realized how he treated their daughter. Mm-hmm. Until he, they realize how they do life together as partners who are like incredible for each other and they bring out the best in the other. They wouldn't have necessarily, if they had followed um, some of the rules, it sounds like you've, you feel like you need to follow, they wouldn't have found each other. Mm. So what was their common thing was a TV show they both watched. And their friend was like, I literally don't want to talk to either of you about the show anymore. You need to talk to each other. And that's how they met. So I think look for things that, like, things that you have in common that aren't just based around what you think the old understanding of godly woman is. Because that's who you used to be. And it sounds like that's not who you are anymore. And I have a feeling you're going to land somewhere else. So I think even if you're reconstructing, I don't know that a godly woman is exactly what you're looking for. Mm. It might be what your parents are looking for, but I think in the end, they'd rather have you with someone that is a, is a partner in life. What do you think? I'm not married by the way. I mean, they addressed the question to both of us. Um, Jenny! <laughs> Jen! I have a, I have a, I, I need, I need a piece of information I don't have, but she may not. I she think, may not respond to being shouted at. She, I also very, think they went to Starbucks. Oh, they went to Starbucks. So she's not here. So uh, the, what I was going to ask Jenny when is when we started dating, but it's, I haven't dated or been single since the 90s. Oh, jeez. Um, the late 90s, 98, somewhere in there, 98 or 99 is when Jenny and I started dating. Jeez. We got married in 2000. So it's been a long time since I've thought about dating. Oh, that's good. That's um, good news. <laughs> like, yeah, just not a thing for me. And so I don't know how people do this now. Everything I don't either, changed. which is the problem, I think. There was... um. There was an internet when I dated Jenny, but people didn't. No, we didn't date no. using the internet. No, we did not. People didn't text. There was no texting. There was AIM. Remember that? Uh, if Jenny Jenny used to page me, she <laughs> would beep me on my pager, and I would go find a telephone and call her. Ooh. And then I got a cell phone, but she would still page me because cell phones were so expensive to use. Ooh. You would use a landline first, and. Uh, I mean, this is, and you, a lot of you don't even know what a pager is. I well, just realized. here's the thing that makes me upset about this whole thing is that there are people who do not know the fear of calling someone's home and having to speak to their parents or their roommate or their roommate or, or like, yeah, nope. So, so I, I'm a, I'm a fossil. I'm a relic <laughs> from an era when I was dating. Computers didn't pick who people would encounter and decide whether. Uh, also, you couldn't look on someone's Facebook page. If I wanted to learn about Jenny, I had to ask her a question yeah, and then listen to her answer, which I actually think is, maybe Helpful. I'm romanticizing, I actually think that's a superior system. Yeah, um, I think that texting and Facebook and all these things have really kind of killed our ability to be present to the other. So I'll just tell you how I did it in my day. When I saw a girl and I thought she was cute or I liked the way she talked, or whatever, I would walk up to her, and I would have a conversation with her. It's very intrusive. And then, <laughs> I, this might be terrible advice today, but I, if, if she looked 
gave me any cues that she was interested, then I would uh, I would take a huge risk and I would invite her out to dinner or coffee or a date. Yeah. In person, again, I couldn't text her. Yeah. I couldn't send an internet message. So you're getting rejected in person, if but, possible. And I was like, that's a terrible system. No, because by doing that, I just indicated to another person they were worth the risk of humiliation. Yeah. Right. So I um, create a preemptive investment um, and I kind of put it on the line. And uh, most of the time it worked. Were you looking for a godly woman? Um, depends on what phase of life I was in. Right. Um, when I when I asked Jenny out, I was looking for a godly woman. Sure, I was a Southern Baptist. But when you look at this, it sounds like he wants someone who's externally a godly woman, meaning that his I family. Use, I want to look at a redemptive use of that phrase. Yeah, godly let's do that. meaning like uh, a good person. A person concerned about things on a longer time frame. Oh, a I like that. A person not superficial. A person with some connection to the divine. So oh, in that I sense, like that. You know. That's better. You're a deeply godly woman. Can we say, though, that requires having that conversation? Right. Because so you're not going to figure that out. Talking to people. That's, that's where I'm going with the only answer is just talk to people. Um, and you know, if you were raised United Reformed Church, like it doesn't sound like it's your jam, so don't go to a United Reformed Church. Find some community where you can be who you are, and people are okay with that, and that's going to make it easier to meet people. the The deinstitutionalized state we are in now as America, where we're tearing down all our social institutions, yeah, is one very necessary, and two very alienating. Oh. There are some good things to institutions that just allow people to be present together in a physical space. Um, so, you know, what I one of the main reasons I wanted Sarah on this week was to redeem that idea of gathering corporately without making it brainwashing or dogmatic. No, or I'm institutions not of patriarchy or white supremacy nope. <laughs> or ableism or heterosexism. How can we do communities well in ways that, that make all of humanity in, not just included, but welcomed and valued and needed? Because that's going to fix a lot of other problems we're having around isolation, depression, suicide, and yes, letting computers pick who we date. It's this hard thing of a... We have to be willing to be embarrassed, and it's a risk. Relationships are always risk, whether it's friends or, you know, Mike and I have been friends for a lot of years now, and there have been times when we've had to bring things up with each other that are risky. How are you going to hear that? How am I going to? And the beauty is those moments where you actually risk, and so that's how we walk away from. I think. What year is it? Two thousand eighteen. We met in twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Yeah, I think so. Or 2011. It's 2012. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, M has a question. EM. I like that. Hello, Science Mike and Pastor Sarah, and thank you for the leadership you bring to your work. Very Mm -hmm. kind, M. Thank you. My question regards having patient discussions of faith in this ever-divisive world we live in. I'm currently in a relationship with someone who grew up with a conservative understanding of the Christian faith, 
And though I grew up in a more progressive faith community, my deconstruction began at the age of 13, and only in the past year have I begun to identify as Christian again, thanks much to Science Mike and the Liturgists. I liked how that sounds like a band from the 50s. Science Mike, Mike and, and the Liturgists. Liturgists. It can be uh, difficult for me to engage in discussions of faith with my partner, as much of their understanding is based on a traditional conservative interpretation mm. of the Bible, and I interpret the messages to be taken in the context of the author, the audience, and history. How do you engage in conversations specifically with a partner about faith issues with as much empathy and love without getting frustrated and without frustrating the other person when your views differ? My partner and I are very much in love and happy, yet this is one area where we approach the table with two very different perspectives. Thanks for your help. Oh, this is a very personal one for me. As <laughs> I was reading that, I was thinking that. Yeah, I may have gone through a similar experience recently, and actually a lot. I find it really interesting. I think I, um, I myself am so uh, interested and curious about the uh, emotive expression of the evangelical church. So mm-hmm. I end up dating, in general, I've ended up dating guys that were from the evangelical background. I think because... Um, that's not the tradition that I came out of, but it was one that I've always been super attracted to. So I think I've always been not attracted to. <laughs> it's just funny to me, like evangelicals are like, you're a bad boy on a motorcycle. <laughs> it's just really funny. It was. Yeah, my parents were really disturbed one time I brought home a Southern Baptist and my mom made me read their stance on women. <laughs> that was my story. It's like instead of a leather jacket and a Harley, it's yeah. like a... Like a, a Bible and a like white button King up. James Bible and like, <laughs> King James, they were just super upset about, yeah. You know, no, I, local coffee. I think for <laughs> <laughs> why are they so into that now? Um, I think for me, because I am interested always in hearing another voice, right? And so maybe, yeah, it is a bit of the bad boy thing, but it's also because I like those parts of me. To, to experience those parts of me and to question those parts of me. I think uh, how you come to it is sort of, how do you have those conversations as you step into it saying, you know, I'm not trying to change your view mm. and you're not trying to change my view. And the beauty of it is we can share and have difference of opinion and it's not gonna change who we are in relationship to each other. And we don't do that enough because I think humans are so afraid of... Uh, of change, right? And they're afraid of being wrong in general. Uh, and I think we we stick to our guns and I think the realization that like, I'm not coming to you with this to try to change your mind. And I think the mistakes I've made in the past, honestly, um, in particularly recently, was thinking like, oh, well, here's some things I really think you should believe. Instead of being like, hey, it is great with me if those things don't change because that's still your great, who you are is enough period. And I'm not asking you to, unless you think that something they're doing is very harmful to them, then that's a different story mm-hmm. or a harmful belief that you think is harming them. Um, I think that's a different story, but yeah, I don't think, I think you come to it with like a, a super open handedness. Um, I have very little interest in convincing Jenny to believe anything different than what she believes no. about literally anything. Right. Cause if you, believe that that's the thing, it will bubble to the top. And I think that's where um, 
some of the anxiety can be released. It's not up to you to have your partner believe the way you believe. That's not your job. Um, but you can have beautiful conversations about difference. And for me, I love those conversations. Um, but I just recently have learned how to be more, um, I think, present and open to those. And not so like, well, I have, you know, because honestly, when I talk about these things, it's a loaded gun because I have this degree that people think, oh, then she knows all the answers. But sometimes I'm just playing around with the questions myself. Mm. And so what I'm landing on may not actually be what I think, but I'm playing around with them. And I have to remember that I have this uh, degree that sometimes seems like I know the answers Mm. and I don't, Mm. except for today, because you're asking me. Yeah, I think it's great, though, that your partner and you are very much in love. Stick to that. Uh, and one thing about your question, how do you have these part conversations without getting frustrated? Don't pretend like you know what you're talking about. Yeah. You already know your partner doesn't know what they're talking about. So now internalize the idea that you don't either. That's one no. of the most helpful things in my life ever has been the realization that I could be wrong about anything and, and i am probably wrong about most things yeah yeah i mean the idea like even the people that hung out with jesus didn't get jesus right right so how am i going to presume i have all the right answers um and i think because my job is tied to that sometimes i can think i need to and i, I don't have all the right mm. answers mm. All right, here we go. Mike, great name, by the way, Mike, has a question. Hi, Pastor Sarah. Hey, that's me. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Got me. (laughs) My spiritual journey has taken me from a secular childhood to an intellectual fascination with world religions to periods as a committed Tibetan Buddhist, Episcopalian, emergence Christian, and disillusioned atheist. Mm. Now I find myself in a place which I think in many ways is similar to where Science Mike is at. And sometimes I call myself a naturalistic mystic. I like the rhyme there, by the way. <laughs> that Contempl- sounds like a really great rapper. Naturalistic <laughs> I'm the naturalistic mystic. mystic. <laughs> Contemplative scientific pantheist or half Christian, half Buddhist, half atheist. That's I like- too many halves. <laughs> it's three over two, which is just one and a half. It just means you're a very full person. Anyway, anyway... I said anyway, then the letter says anyway. When I was losing my Christian faith, I became pretty scornful about theology. I regarded it as nothing more than an exercise in finding some compelling words to justify things that the author had decided were true about God. (laughs) Basically making stuff up to make your preconceptions sound impressive. But just recently, I've been reading a theological book about mental illness by a friend of mine, It so happens that he and I both live with bipolar disorder, and I was all set to roll my eyes at his theology. (laughs) What does set to roll your eyes look like? Like (laughs) You're just like ready to roll your eyes. I get it. But instead, I've been cheering along with it. Hmm. And I believe that the thing that's making it ring so true for me is that he never tries to fit his experience into the box of some traditional belief structure, despite that he and his book are both pretty orthodox. Instead, he searches for theological stories that make sense in light of his experiences. In other words, making stuff up to justify his preconceptions. I'm having trouble figuring out why the very thing that used to annoy me about theology is making his book seem so authentic. I don't think it's just because 
my friend or because our shared experience is mental illness. Anyway, my question is, in your view, what's the appropriate role of a personal experience in constructing theology? Is mm. theology simply telling stories that make sense of one's own personal spiritual experiences, including shared ones, in hope that those stories will resonate with someone else's life? If so, I think maybe I'm okay with that. And thanks. All right. So remember earlier I got to say my favorite word, which is quadrilateral? I, I do remember that. <laughs> so this is a quadrilateral question because I think experience is important. Personal experience is important. Right? But I don't think personal experience should sit alone when it comes to theology even. When we look at practicing theology or understanding, so theology, just the study of God, I don't think we can just use personal experience because personal experience is like personal, right? But I think experience can sit with tradition, reason, experience, and scripture. If you're looking at theology, particularly Christian theology, so using the Bible as scripture. Um, and so, yeah, I think everybody needs experience. Faith isn't faith or um, our expression of theology isn't our expression of theology. You can't be a naturalistic mystic without having had experiences, more importantly, experiences that matter, hmm. right? You don't just keep believing something unless you have an experience that's reaffirming that, remaking that happen. So I think this is an example of why I think you're looking at his book and you're hearing him do a great job of using, uh, it sounds like tradition, so he's got stories that fit in, experience, and using reason to why this makes sense within the Christian tradition or faith. What do you think? Now we need we need shirts. Let's say Wesleyan AF. Yes. And that would be your shirt. And it's funny because I <laughs> for me I had to have a faith that I couldn't I I Charles couldn't. Wesley, the founder of Methodism. John, John and Charles. Excuse, Charles is the brother, you're right. So John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Uh, who was never a Methodist. Methodist. No, it's actually, well, and I don't, Jesus was never a Christian. So. Also true. <laughs> we, it, we've all, you know, we've made structures. <laughs> It'd be of, hilarious if he was though. It's like, <laughs> what are you trying to do with your life, Jesus? I just want to be more like me. <laughs> what would Jesus do? That's how I'm living. <laughs> what would Sarah do? That's what I'm doing. That's incredible. Yeah, actually, that's super deep, actually, if you think about it for a while. I think uh, you're experiencing uh, a great way of looking at faith and using, we all have a lens through which we look at faith. Theology, it's not possible to do theology without experience. It's not possible. You have some sort of experience. You always bring yourself to the study of anything. Yeah. You cannot... I was trying to think if it was possible to do anything without experience. No. And it is, but what is very it? few things. Float. Yes. <laughs> breathe. Breathe. Earlier I complained that I breathe too much, and then Mike reminded me that every human breathes. I was like, that's an interesting thing to have shame about. Like, <laughs> gosh, my breathing. If only I could just not breathe. Well, I feel bad for my podcast editors, because I feel like they spend most of their life removing all my extra breaths. Breaths. Uh, I wouldn't know how many of my breaths have to be removed, but I guarantee you Greg Nordine could tell you at the drop of a hat about <laughs> my breathing patterns and whether they're a problem or not. I just did it. I feel like 
in my like radio now i'm really conscious of my breathing yeah sorry but i feel like i put them pretty consistently in sentences and make them pauses oh yeah i don't know it's a radio thing Anyway, point being, Mike, thanks for your question. And I think uh, you're asking good questions, which is part of theology, asking good questions. And you didn't ask me, so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn here. But I would think one thing— I'm going to give you permission to speak. <laughs> Thank you. As a woman in the church, I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, one of the things that makes theology compelling to me is when it comes from the margins or marginalized voices, mm-hmm. since that is also where the Christian faith came from, which is a super quadrilateral thing. Yep. Okay, Christopher has quite a question. Ooh. This is, a, this is one full page. Get ready. Get ready, everybody. There's going to be a lot of breaths. Yes. Pastor Sarah. My wife and I have recently stopped attending the church we both grew up in and held leadership roles in. This has been a long fight and a slow retreat through struggles with abusive leadership and our own evolving faith. We're in a season right now where we'd love to be able to just attend a church like normal people. (laughs) We're in no rush to jump back into leadership, though the ultimate goal is to find somewhere that we feel welcomed safe, and happy to volunteer our time, too. The problem we're running into is that every time I head to the website of a church we're considering checking out, I can't seem to find one that ticks the right boxes for me. Wishful thinking, I know. I'll look up a church that seems to match our style of worship, only to find the staff page populated solely by old white dudes, (laughs) with people of color rarely making an appearance, and women relegated to roles like administrative assistant or receptionist. The doctrine sections tend to be rife with paragraphs espousing things like eternal conscious torment, verbal (sighs) plenary plenary inspiration, and literalist end-time jargon, etc. It has occurred to me now I don't know what the word plenary means, although I've seen it many times. (laughs) Of course, there are also the more mainline churches that have satisfyingly gracious, open, and welcoming theology and social views. We'd love to be a part of a community like this, but there are certain stylistic things that make it hard for us to engage in the worship. Being a musician and graphic designer, (laughs) I just don't know if I can sit through any more handbell choirs and mauve robes with bulletins typeset in the papyrus font. (laughs) Maybe we're being too picky. Uh, that is just so mainline. Just those great old churches with beautiful buildings. I'm anyway, turning red. Maybe we're being too picky. I know that the purpose of the church is not to make us happy, go figure. But it is too. But is it too much to ask for a place that ticks off all the theological and social boxes, but also utilizes music and artistry that feels authentic and at home in the 21st century? I know there are churches like this in more urban areas, but we are way out in nowhere, Illinois. I guess my question is this. What compromises do you think are worth making in search of a spiritual community? Should we find a church that shares our values and beliefs despite not feeling able to engage in their liturgical practice? Or do we look for a place that can give us the church experience we're looking for and helps us feel the presence of God despite certain faith statements we can't exactly get behind do we hold these differences in tension, knowing that none of us ever have it all right? For me, the prohibition of women in leadership would be a deal breaker, 
but I could look the other way on differing opinions on baptism, for instance. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Chris. So I immediately thought he like looked the other way when baptisms were happening. <laughs> just every time a baptism, he just turned <laughs> he turns your back. His back. <laughs> so this is actually a question I think a lot of people are asking right now. Um, I tend to say that, uh, for instance, United Methodism uh, has a theology that seems to be really uh, helpful for uh, particularly people of the 21st century and for people who are, uh, like I say, the nuns and duns. However, many of my brothers and sisters have churches with the mauve robes, um, papyrus font. I would actually be excited if they got to papyrus font. Um, so then the question becomes, how do we reconcile? Because I also know tons of my brothers and sisters who are in evangelical churches and they don't believe what the churches believe. And not just, I don't mean like there are great evangelical churches, actually. Man, that's all over L.A. Like right. really progressive people in churches, they go to super conservative churches because they're artistic. Yeah, because they're artistic and they want they want an artistic expression. So what do you do? What do you hold on to? What do you let go of? So for me, I'm really lucky in that I got to create what I wanted to be a part of. So we are a church that is liturgical because lit- liturgy to me is uh, is really helpful. Uh, but we have music that is both ancient and modern. So we do hymns as well as songs. The other problem we have is a lot of the worship songs, the theology around it can be really difficult. And by that, I mean, it can be pretty sappy and not in ways that are um, helpful, but in ways where Jesus can almost sound like your boyfriend in odd, odd ways. Like I, (laughs) I had a friend who is not a Christian and we played a game called is this a worship song or a love song? <laughs> and he was like, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I ask Jenny to bend beneath the weight of my love and mercy. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wasn't a visual person. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, but I think if I were having to make this decision, because I have had to make this decision before, I spent five years in a church that didn't believe in women in ministry while I was a lead pastor at another church because I really needed to be around artistic people because mm. I play music, I love music. I needed to be around people who were singing what I felt like were modern songs. So for me, I get it, I've been there. Um, and this wasn't in nowhere, Illinois. I like wanted to know where you were from because I was hoping you would say near me. I was like, come on. So my question is, since you don't seem like you're quite ready to create what you need, because it sounds like you need to just be receiving right now, um, a season of receiving, a season of just participating in something, I would think, honestly, it would be easier to be in a community that had uh, similar theological beliefs to me than it would be to be in a community where the music was really great, but at some point that's all there was for me. Um, so, and then maybe later you can be part of the change. I want to say as a mainliner who doesn't have a budget, who didn't have a budget in any other church that I've been a part of until recently, where we could have a graphic artist, what a gift for you to even say, hey, let me take an afternoon and take your bulletin and take out your <laughs> papyrus font and let's try something different. Um, the other thing you have to think too is some of the mainline churches are dying because they're holding on to things that aren't necessarily um, liturgical. It's just, this is the way we've always done it. Mm. And if you go to one of those communities, you're going to feel as crushed 
as if you were going to a community that was um, had great music but had a theology that you couldn't handle. So I think it's really sitting down and making a list of like, what are the deal breakers? So there aren't a lot of churches that allow full leadership of women. Uh, there are many mainline churches, but there aren't a lot of uh, non-denom churches that would allow a woman, allow a, that always feels weird coming out of my mouth, allow a woman to be a lead pastor. So you have to ask some of those questions. I would also not recommend going to a website as the way of figuring out what the community is all about. Because I don't think you can learn some things, but you can't learn all things. Um, finding people who are actually part of that community is probably a little bit better way of doing that. Um, the other thing is, if you become part of a community that has theology that you find to be really harming, you've become part of it whether you wanted to or not. Mm. And uh, you're tithing to the perpetuation of this. So I think for me, I would rather go to a community where I'm like, man, handbells. Uh, what am I going to do about it? And then figure out a way that when I'm ready to step in and maybe be a part of that changing, because a lot of these places want to change, but they haven't had people who are capable of doing that um, or who are interested in doing that. Um, so music for me is not what it used to be. It used to be I needed great music. And now I need, I'm lucky I have great music now, but for a season I put up with music that I maybe wouldn't have chosen myself. So I don't, I'm not a huge fan of like the 90s contemporary Christian music stuff. Like it really wigs me out a little bit, but Methodist churches for a while thought that was the way to be modern. And so it was the 2000s friends, but we were still rocking the shine, Jesus shine sometimes. Mm. But I would rather put up with that in a community that was perpetuating healthy theology and love of self and love of God and love of neighbor um, than be in a church that had really great fog machines and really good looking worship leaders, but didn't have that thing that I needed. I don't know. What do you think? Because I think it is really interesting here how many people go, yeah, they actually apologize to me. They meet me and then they apologize to me for the church they go to. Like, I go to blah, blah, blah. But it's not because I believe what they believe. I just really like this part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, but now you're adding to the numbers of people who are sitting there and people are assuming believing what you believe. I mean, they already know my answer. What do you look for in a church? It affirms you as you are. Yep, absolutely. Challenges you to become who you are becoming. That's the entire formula for me. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a church refugee right now. I still kind of oh, identify no. my Tallahassee church as our home church. I wish I lived closer. Uh, oh my gosh, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, we visited some churches. I like most of them. My family is like... Chris, where you are, yeah. but I need like this thing. And like every church I go to, as long as the theology is not horrifically violent, I love. So I literally went to a church in Cincinnati, Hyde Park United Methodist. Oh, yeah. And um, like my favorite service was the traditional service. Yeah. Because it was just all these like faithful older people. Yep. And I went to a church here in, you know, just down the road, a little me tiny Methodist church. Yeah, that and thing's little. Mid not that one, another one, uh, La Cunyati non-Methodist. Oh, gosh, yeah. That Took the tiny. whole family, which, by the way, you take you take a young family into a tiny Methodist church of older people. Like beagles. They're yes, on you. Like, yeah. Much excitement. Yeah. Um, Have you met John? He's under 50. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But these, their men's choir sang. 
And oh. I didn't want to say the name of the church. I'm guessing none of them listen to podcasts. But the, the men's choir came up. And um, it was older gentlemen. Yeah. And not strong singers. Not your favorite. And I loved it. Yeah. Because, because it was authentic. And they'd taken, like, it was clear they had rehearsed together. Yep. This was like a very real expression of faithfulness. And I was moved to tears. Yeah. Right? So... Um, I have a, a cup that a couple gave to me at my church. So I've been in a, a church that's uh, sort of redeveloping. So we uh, had, when I got there, there were 17 to 27 elderly, mostly elderly folks. And then they brought me in and with me came a lot of diversity that first week. And we have just ever since then been growing. And the interesting thing is we're growing not just in older people or younger people, because we have a lot of millennials, which is um, unique, but we also have um, a lot of older people who are moving to the area and they find their Methodist church and they go in and they're like, this is a very vibrant Methodist church. I haven't seen one in a while, <laughs> but I have a mug. It's like a, like a, what do you call it? Anyway, it has, uh, someone got engraved on it. First United Methodist flawless, because when I first got there for over six months, uh, we had a woman who just played an accompanist who just played on the chancel. So like on the stage, but I couldn't see her. No one was leading worship. So it was just the most awkward music <laughs> you have ever experienced. And she's a wonderful pianist and um, things would go wrong all the time. And I would always say, if you're yelping this, um, the word you're looking for is flawless. Cause it was <laughs> not flawless at all. And we've since grown and we have a, a worship leader and we have amazing band, but, the worship leader told me the reason he started coming to the church was he loved how authentic it was. Mm. And he said, I, I love, you know, you keep saying like joke around about, well, something's going to go wrong every week. Like a microphone is going to, something's going to pop. I'm going to forget something. It's going to something awkward is going to happen. And he said for him as someone who's worked on staff at like huge mega churches for him, this sense of this is authentically who these people are is so beautiful that he worries that it's going to get too polished. Can you imagine worrying like that? Oh, this could be too good. And mm. then it, it, it'll change the whole atmosphere. So I, I love that. I think go somewhere where you feel like being authentically themselves, where the theology is something that is helpful to you. Like you say, they'll accept you who you are that you can bring your friends to. Um, and I think it is, it's a, it's a question that so many people are answering and asking and wondering. And, and all of you, you might find, that if you stretch mm -hmm. yourselves, there might be growth or, gosh, I hate to use this word, but like maturity mm -hmm. on the other side. There's a what? There's a First Presbyterian Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and um, the, a couple co-pastors it. They're some of my favorite people. And uh, the first time I attended one of their services, they had no worship leader. Yeah. And I was like, the evangelical in me went, what are you doing? How does anyone know so what messy. to do? But it wasn't because no. all these faithful Presbyterians like just start singing from their hymnals. Yep. And, but then I, I was struck in a second after my like evangelical panic attack <laughs> of like the beauty yeah. of a congregation singing to Christ just itself. And Takes it's like away harder to get into. It's not but a performance. Yeah, there was no performance. There's no performative part of it. Um, so and, our goal... With my staff, I say, we're going to try to make it as least likely, like as least awkward as possible. So people aren't um, 
taken where they're distracted because it's so awkward. That's our, that's our goal. <laughs> like, don't make it awkward so that people are uncomfortable and distracted. But instead, let's authentically be ourselves. Mm. We're not the, we're not, we're not the best at everything. Great question, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Robert's got a quicker one. Sorry. Yeah. We are so many questions. My question is, what books or other media has inspired you recently? Ooh. So... I recently uh, started listening to Suzanne Stabile, I think is how you say her last name, and she actually was recently on my podcast. Hold on. Yes. You got her new book. I just ordered it. I haven't got it yet. You've got an advanced copy. She wrote, oh, because you reviewed it. Mike is so much cooler than me. So I'm it's not. the path between us. And she was on my podcast, which I thought was so sweet of her. And she, I'm a two with a three. I don't know if you talk about the Enneagram on Ask Science Mike, but in the Enneagram. Some I of my a, science fans get real annoyed, but yes, we sorry do. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah. So she suggested that I read Henri Nouwen's journals. And that is what I've been reading and inspired by it. I also am rereading a friend of ours, um, Jonathan Martin's book. Yes. How to Survive a Shipwreck. Oh, it's great. That book. Friends, it's so good. <laughs> he can write. Oh, that boy can write. Uh, so that's been something that's been really inspiring to me. Um, and I've been listening to uh, Suzanne and Ian, Ian's podcast, which is uh, The Road Back to You on, um, on podcasting. I also, uh, <laughs> I listened to a podcast called The Dollop. It is not appropriate and a pastor shouldn't recommend it, but it has been really great and helpful for me. Do you know The Dollop? No, but you just intrigued me by saying it wasn't appropriate for a pastor. Yeah, so it well, it's a lot of cussing and guys that have a really tough time with Christianity. But they oh. are two comedians who read uh, real history stories. Okay, and it is really helpful because they really dig in. So that's what's been inspiring me lately. Also, art. I'm a big artist person, and I've been listening to propaganda a lot. Oh my gosh! Yeah. His stuff's so good. I didn't know about Prop until after he came on the podcast. And Prop's I was like, kind of the best. I'll get some of his records. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, he's good. Precious Puritans. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, Gentrify. It, it, this is whole body of work. It's, it's good. So that's inspiring me. Uh, okay. Wayne says, hi, Sarah. My hi. question is about hearing a voice of God. How do you look at passages like 1 King 19 and 1 Samuel 3? And Mike's Those hearing, ones I know. <laughs> and Mike's hearing, I was here when you were eight, and I'm here now. I have my own surprising experience of hearing another voice than mine. I think the divine speaks. What do you think? I think the divine speaks too. Uh, I don't know what that means. Does it mean an actual audible voice? That if I had been standing, I was not standing beside you on the beach. I was inside. Mm. Yeah. Um, would I have heard that voice? I don't know. Um, I don't know how the divine speaks. I say no. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I was giving it, I was being open-handed about it. That's very beautiful. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> then we'd have to go, me or him? Eight? Which one of That's us? That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, I think the divine speaks today for sure. I am. Uh, I haven't experienced it, but mm. I think the divine has spoken to me through other people. Um, I have had experiences that make no sense where people know things they shouldn't know and give me a word or a message or um, something that I needed that I didn't, you know, and however you want to look at that. I think uh, the divine uses all kinds of different ways to talk to us. Mm. Okay. Aaron asks, how do you interpret passages in the Bible that make women (laughs) seem more unclean than men 
such as the law about how long a woman is unclean after a female birth than a male birth. Yeah. After reading the Bible, often in my quiet times as a child and young adult, I came away with a distorted view of men and women that I'm still trying to unlearn. Well, what's interesting is they were actually very progressive views of women for the time, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, women uh, even included in the idea of being able to be part of uh, ruling and and be part of the message is is was actually revolutionary for the time. You wouldn't have had religious rules for women in the same way. So in some ways, uh, I think it look you have to contextualize it. I think um, I think you know the divine is still speaking in a lot of those ways and a lot of things. I think that you have to look at how even progressive for the time these ideas of um yeah and also sanity or sanity that's not the word i wanted what's the word i want sanitation thank you gosh sanitation um was an issue right but the idea of a woman being more unclean when she has a woman uh, a child that's a woman um a child that's a girl i you don't have yes. fullborn anyway point being <laughs> i think that as we look at it uh we have to look at the contextualization of it and we have to look at sort of um, how things progressed or moved along mm. later on in scripture, because you see Jesus, particularly the woman at the well, things like that, speaking to people who would have been considered unclean and treating them as clean. And then there's also the vision um, of uh, things that you once declared clean or unclean, I declare clean now. So we have this sort of understanding that, yes, maybe there was a season and a time that it, women um, were considered more unclean, but that was also happening in the general context as well. Patriarchy rose with agriculture. Sorry, a little it's, anthropology there. It's true. It is actually very true. Okay, Mallory has our final question for you, Sarah. Are Ooh, you ready? I'm ready. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. Do you believe that the Bible is uniquely inspired by God in a way that gives it more authority than other religious books or teachings? Since you are a pastor, I would guess that you have a special affection for the Bible, but do you ever seem to hear the voice of God in other religious texts as well? As I've met many people of other faiths, they all seem to have met God in the context of their own holy book. This is fascinating to me. Thank you. Ooh. Uh, So I do find the Bible to be uniquely helpful for me in my spiritual uh, you got to oh, move toward the mic. Oh, I, I thought you were dancing. I didn't no, know what you were saying. That was me pantomiming, get closer to the mic. I'm really uh, thick sometimes. Um, I think I was trying to dance with you. That was like, <laughs> you're you like, know, uh, okay, uh. we're dancing. Scripture. All right. Um, I think the Bible is uniquely helpful for me. And I think I find God's beautiful uh, story of love and redemption for us weaved in a unique way throughout the Bible. I also have read other, obviously I've read a lot of other uh, religious teachings, and I have found things that were um, helpful for me. However, I do find, for me, the Holy Scripture of uh, the Bible is my Holy Scripture, right? Mm. But I find it very interesting, a story that I tell often because it uh, makes me laugh. A couple of years ago, I used to do a service for Thanksgiving with uh, the Islamic community in my area, as well as the Jewish community and myself and um, another pastor. We did this sort of Thanksgiving's the one holiday we all hold in common. 
So what we would do is we would do a service project together. We would talk about each other's scriptures. We would sort of share our different traditions around Thanksgiving because it was a, a place for us all to agree and gather. And it was just, they were wonderful leaders. And this kid comes running up. We're, we're meeting at an Islamic center. And this kid comes running up. He's panicked. He's absolutely panicked because I had put my Bible on the ground. Mm. And within uh, the tradition of their, of their community and their understanding of the holy word of anyone's holy word is that you never put it on the ground and you never turn your back to it. Mm. So I had just draw. I had like six Bibles in the back of my car that I just had like thrown back there at that point. And I just had a Bible and I had walked in and I was speaking that night. So I just threw the Bible down by my chair. And he was like, no, 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 I don't teach her. I think you forgot that, like so worried and brought it to me and treated it with such care and compassion and love. And it, it wasn't even his holy scriptures. Mm. And I thought, oh, I have a lot to learn from that. I don't, do I hold these words as so uh, sacred and holy to treat it in such an uh, intense way? And no, the answer is no, I don't. And so um, since then. I would only do that with the Harry Potter series. You know, I got in trouble today earlier for having not read those yet. Dang it. I like how I say yet, like they just came out. <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> My mom's actually from the area of England where they uh, filmed it. But I think uh, the scripture for me is primary or the, the Holy Bible is primary. But I hate the word even like the Holy Bible. You know, people, when they say the Old Testament, my Jewish friend was saying this to me one time, please stop calling it the Old Testament when you're talking to me. Because to me, there's nothing old about it. <laughs> Call it the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> the Hebrew Bible or, you know, scripture. Because mm -hmm. it's scripture across the board. Everyone calls it scripture. So when I say the Holy Bible, I mean both Old and New Testament within our understanding or the Hebrew Bible. Um, and I do, I find... God uniquely in there. Because for me, the story of Jesus and the incarnation is uniquely um, important to my story. Mm. What about you? She didn't ask me. Oh, man. That one's just you. Again, they already know. I've got a whole, I got a book out. You know, they. I got a book out. There's no mystery left with me. Um, no, but I mean about these particular issues. Yeah. Yes. That's what I meant by I have a book out. Oh, you, you know. Have a book out. I forgot to mention as inspiring and helpful for me as I've been falling more and more in love with scripture. Cause for a while I was just contextualizing everything, but then I've kind of come back around to where I'm finding more mystery and awe in scripture. Mm -hmm. Peter Eanes. Oh yeah. Peter Eanes. Um, and I know you've talked to him before. He has an incredible podcast uh, called the Bible for normal people. I have been getting a lot of, we didn't out of ask that. Bible Pete. You did. He hosted the program. Oh, answer people's Bible, Bible questions. Oh, I love that. Yeah, he's he's a he's a he's, he's a he's a bamf. Bamf. He's a bad ass mother father. Father. <laughs> he's a bamf for sure. I love it. I and the, that's helped me fall in love with scripture again because I do love the word of God as as much as the, it's hard and it's a thing you have to wrestle with. The other thing I would say about scripture and I would hate if I didn't get to say it is that um Scripture is meant to be wrestled with, right? Yes. What are you laughing at? I was laughing because you were saying, if, and if, I hate if I didn't get to say it like I was about to play Oscars music. I don't know. And, I get nervous. And your, your time on the program. <laughs> I feel like I've been talking a lot. It's a lot of talking. Um, but scripture is meant to be wrestled with. And actually, we learn that from our Jewish brothers and sisters. They argue with scripture. And midrashic reading is to argue with the scripture and the meaning of it. 
And within Christianity, sometimes we are told the story that like you need to understand exactly what it says and that's what it says. But that's not being in love with something. If I just like said, oh, I, I understand Mike. There's nothing more for me to learn about Mike, even though you said there's nothing more to learn. No, the beauty of it is, is I have more questions to ask of you. I don't take you at face value. Mm. I'm going to keep asking questions. And that's what I get to do with scripture. And part of me loving scripture has meant that scripture could handle me saying, I'm just not sure about you right now, but I don't walk away from you. Because it's only when we stop asking questions of things, when we just believe things at face value, that we're no longer in love with it. Mm. So, I like the Holy Bible, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Not the King James Version. <laughs> I even like the King James. As a historical document. As a historical document. And it's kind of fun to... Hold on. We'll take a little field trip here. Oh, geez. Do you have a king? You do. Oh, ooh, it's his most. Oh, it has your name inscribed on now, it. This is my childhood Bible. My uh, great grandmother gave this no. to me on the occasion of my birth. <gasps> uh, so this was like my, this is how I learned the Bible, looking at these maps. maps. And there's just something about. Please read it in your radio voice. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, mm. if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, <laughs> for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon which is not? Oh. For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. There's a Shakespearean sort of quality to the King James that I find delightfully absurd. <laughs> I do kind of love it. Like, what does it mean to hunger after someone's dainties? Like, uh, <laughs> that actually sounds kind of dirty. <laughs> it sounds super dirty. <laughs> I don't want to know about your dainties. Like if you have appetites, hold a knife to your throat and don't hunger after a man's dainties? I mean... Hello! <laughs> I mean, who hasn't hungered, hungered after, after another man's, man's dainties? dainties? I often hold a knife to my throat when it happens. So. <laughs> uh, I think it's hard because... I have a lot of Bibles. People only call... They, they, they call that the Holy Bible. Like That's the scripture. If it's not in that translation. I mean, there, there have been wars fought over this. In my high school Bible's next to it. That's an NIV. Mm, yeah, we had the NIV. And then my grown-up Bibles, they the are NRSV. the NRSV and the message. The message. <laughs> and then Bibliotheca, which is a five-volume set. It's beautiful, though. Including the That's Apocrypha. the sexiest Bible. I really like it. It's so sexy. Like it, it's... Uh, the it's, font. It's very readable. It's not papyrus. No, that and is definitely not And it opens all the way. Fold flat. Oh. Yeah, that's... Now uh, it sounds like we're talking dirty about I a still, Bible. I still probably read the NRSV more. Yeah, that's what I read. I don't know why. So for me, you want to know why? I read the NRSV because when I was in grad school, uh, the language students and the students who were, uh, and the professors and teachers who are uh, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic scholars, they say the NRSV for them is currently the most scholastically accurate of original language. Well, there we go. Okay. The more you know. Hey, there's one thing. Ask Do you know why Pastor I ordered Sarah. that? Because I so many learned people yeah are like yeah i just read the nrsv 
really? Just over and over. So I got one and then I found it like, I found that when I read that Bible, I had to do less work Mm -hmm. to contextualize. Like when I would go look at other resources, I'd be like, well, that's pretty much just what it said in the first place. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and so this word really looks like it's more, no, it's actually a pretty good first shot there. That's why when people say, like, I preach nothing but the Bible, I always say, which Bible? (laughs) (laughs) And how do you preach anything? Like, you can't leave your human self outside of how you... You see, next to the Bibles, I have the Philoclea, which is the Greek Orthodox Fathers, kind of like their second book. Next to that are Pete N's books. Oh, yay. And then Spong's uh, Biblical Literalism of Gentile Heresy. And then a good book, Adam Hamilton. Adam Hamilton. Yeah, but so it just sort of like that's like my like Bible neighborhood up there on the bookshelf. Um, that people are like, how do you read the Bible? Well, it's basically those books combined with those books. You know, <laughs> and then the God delusion. <laughs> you know who I get a lot of Rumi. You ever read Rumi? Yes, Rumi for me has a lot of for me moments where I feel connected to God in reading Rumi. Of course, yeah. If you if not, you would be dead. That's <laughs> soulless. Well, we've done an hour and 28-minute podcast here. That's really long. I'm guessing Greg will will give it a slight haircut, but hopefully not too much. I like just running it like it is. Sarah, thank you oh, for thank you. not only coming on the show, but devoting such a huge block of your day to doing so. Oh, I loved it. Uh, and, and if you don't live, if you do live near Costa Mesa, California, you'd be remiss if you didn't visit First Come United Methodist. Yeah. If you don't, and you're like, gosh, I really like Sarah. I'd like to hear more from her. What do you know? You have a podcast called Sonderlust. Sonderlust, the podcast. And you can also hear, if you want to hear my messages, you can go to First United Methodist Church online and you can actually download my messages if you want. But Sonderlust is my own personal journey of faith and finding happiness. So I'd love for so you to check that out. We'll put links to Sarah's stuff in the show notes on this episode of Ask Science Mike. Just Google... Ask Pastor Sarah Science Mike. That. that should probably be the first hit. It'll probably be this episode. So uh, we'd like to thank, as always, the patrons on Patreon for submitting the questions on this Great week's questions. program. We'd like to thank uh, Andrew Galucky for his work in pre-production on Ask Science Mike. We'd like to thank Greg Nordine, the producer of Ask Science Mike, who makes the final decisions on what goes on the air and as always and a lot of decisions in our lives that's true (laughs) yes plus if you ever uh, want the dirt on me Greg has all the raw files of every podcast I've ever done so he can end my career in three seconds Uh, (laughs) I want to thank Jeb Bonifer for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song and I want to thank you all for listening I'll be happy to talk with you next week Hi, Dad. I know you listen to every episode of Ask Science Mike. I'm not sure you listen to every episode of my podcast.